Hello everyone, welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 12, The Battle for Carthage. Last time, we left off with Agathocles and his Greek army invading North Africa in a desperate gamble to attack Carthage's homeland to draw off her army from the siege of Syracuse. After inflicting a serious defeat on a hastily assembled Carthaginian army and killing the most able of the Carthaginian commanders, Agathocles and his Greeks leisurely pillaged and terrorized the rich Carthaginian holdings surrounding the city. Although he could burn and loot at will, Agathocles had neither the manpower nor the resources to storm the formidable defenses of Carthage while the Carthaginians did not dare to meet him in open battle again. Instead, Carthage sent frantic messages to its general in Sicily, Hamilcar Gizgo, requesting professional reinforcements to defend the city from Agathocles. Stuck in an awkward stalemate, both sides watched as the other threatened their home city and waited to see how the situation would develop. Today, we will see how bloody events within the streets of Carthage herself would galvanize the population into once again taking the field against the marauding Greeks. Before we begin, I have some exciting news. In the spirit of Christmas, I would like to give you all a gift I know you are just dying for. Geographical Knowledge Over the past week and a half, I have delved into many dusty books and web pages and watched several YouTube videos in the hopes of pulling off a grand project. Armed with newfound technical skills, I have managed to make a map of Carthage and the surrounding territories and civilizations, complete with color coding and helpful labels. I am hoping that this will help give some context for where all the major players are during the upcoming episodes, and it will at least save you the trouble of googling. A brief disclaimer though, as this is a hand-drawn map and I am only an amateur cartographer, I may have missed highlighting a few minor islands or colonies. So if your favorite Mediterranean Greek city-state of antiquity didn't make it on the map, the blame rests squarely on my shoulders. Despite this glaring defect, the map lays out the civilizations and cities closely enough to give an accurate idea of where everyone was during the early 300s BC. In the next episode, I will cover both the map and the surrounding civilizations in detail, since our narrative will soon expand to cover the entire Mediterranean in the coming episodes prior to the First Punic War. But I thought I'd give you all an early Christmas present as a teaser for what's to come. The map should be accessible in the notes to this episode, but please be patient with me if I have to iron out any technical difficulties. Alright, back to the crisis at hand. Leaving Agathocles to continue to amass riches at the Carthaginians' expense, we must briefly return to the Carthaginian army in Sicily. As we remember, 
Hamilcar Gizgo had besieged Syracuse following the Battle of the River Hamira. Although the escape of Agathocles was an unfortunate blunder, Hamilcar Gizgo had remained optimistic that Syracuse could be taken before Agathocles could force Carthage to come to terms. When the messengers from Carthage arrived requesting reinforcements, they brought with them the bronze prows taken from Agathocles' ships, which had survived being burned. Deciding to try to take the city by trickery rather than storm, Hamilcar Gizgo sent envoys to Syracuse, exhibiting the bronze prows before the walls, telling the defenders that Agathocles and his men were dead, and there was no hope of aid from them. Hamilcar Gizgo also offered generous terms to the Syracusans if they would surrender, promising to respect the lives of the inhabitants and of Agathocles' brother and Tander. Now, it was Syracuse's turn to panic. Many of the citizens believed the Carthaginian envoys and pointed out that if the Syracusans wanted proof of Agathocles' fate, they should look no further than the bronze prows outside the walls. Many of the leaders remained unconvinced, though, and took severe measures to enforce order in the city. Those who had family members and friends in Agathocles' expeditionary force, as well as the malcontents discontented with the new regime, were expelled from the city, along with their wives and children. Diodorus states that no less than 8,000 people were exiled and cornered between the walls of Syracuse and the besieging Carthaginians. A great weeping and mourning went up over the city as these families left the homes of their forefathers, while those who remained behind bewailed the supposed destruction of their army. Fortunately for the exiles, when Hamilcar Gizgo saw the long line of destitute families approaching his position, he took pity on them and offered them safety behind his lines. Those left behind in Syracuse remained in a state of suspense. Diodorus describes in Tander, Agathocles' brother, whom he had left behind to watch over the city, as unmanly and cowardly by nature, and states that Antander was willing to accept Hamilcar Gizgo's generous offer to save his own hide. Perhaps mindful of his brother's weakness, Agathocles had appointed his trusted friend Yermnon the Aetolian as co-ruler with Antander, and Yermnon convinced the people to wait until definite tidings reached them regarding the fate of the expedition. His confidence was not misplaced. Soon after the victory at White Tunis, Agathocles had built a small ship to send word back to Syracuse of his success to encourage the citizens to continue the fight. After a few days at sea, the ship was approaching the harbor of Syracuse with the glad news, the sailors wearing wreaths around their heads, the symbol of victory, and singing songs of triumph. However, the Carthaginian ships caught sight of the messengers, 
and again a furious chase ensued. The Syracusans watched helplessly as their friends rode frantically to escape the Carthaginians, crying out in horror as the pursuers inched ever closer. Right when the foremost of the Carthaginian ships was bearing down to deliver a crushing blow on the Syracusan ship, both ships came within range of the city walls. Now the citizens manned the battlements surrounding the harbor, firing missiles at the Carthaginian ships, disrupting the pursuit. Under heavy fire, the Carthaginians reluctantly ceased and returned to their camp. When the messengers from Agathocles told of the success of the invasion of Africa, the citizens' joy was doubled, and the city broke out into an impromptu celebration. Hamilcar Gizgo, however, had not been idle. Seeing the disturbance inside the city, he secretly sent his men to scale the deserted walls and attack. The Carthaginians had nearly taken an entire section of the walls before they were discovered by the guards who sounded the alarm. The celebrating citizens seized their arms and, flushed by the news from Agathocles, drove the Carthaginian vanguard from the walls, killing many of the attackers and hurling others over the battlements. Thus, Syracuse twice barely escaped being taken, once by trickery and once by storm. Undeterred by these reverses, Hamilcar Gizgo next determined to lead his men around Syracuse by night to attack the walls surrounding the Euryalus fortress. Encouraged by his soothsayer's promise that he would dine in Syracuse the next day. The Greeks learned of his intentions, though, and they sent a small force of 3,000 men and 400 cavalry to guard the Euryalus. When Hamilcar Gizgo attempted to lead his men by night through the country, he found that the roads were badly maintained and too narrow for his numerous force. To make matters worse, a large mob of unarmed camp followers and rabble followed his army, intermingling with his baggage train and causing disorder in the ranks of the troops. When the Syracusans saw the lack of cohesion among the Carthaginian advance, they immediately charged the Carthaginians from the hills surrounding the Euryalus. Although Hamilcar Gizgo valiantly stood his ground and attempted to form the Carthaginians into a battle line. Chaos ensued, as the Carthaginians could not see in the dark where they were being attacked from. Due to their cramped position between the hills, the units could not maneuver to resist the Greek attack. And worse, friendly units accidentally attacked each other, mistaking their friends for the enemy in the dark. Finally, the Carthaginians fled in terror. Many soldiers and camp followers were trampled by their own cavalry, and Hamilcar Gizgo, abandoned by his men, was captured by the exultant Syracusans.
in a cruel twist of fate, he did dine in Syracuse the next day following his assault, before being paraded around the city and cruelly tortured to death. Yermnon ordered that Hamilcar Gizgo's head be cut off and sent to Agathocles in North Africa. So ended Carthage's most able and courageous general of the Third Sicilian War. Throughout the conflict, Hamilcar Gizgo had shown himself a valiant, capable, and generous general. And this makes it all the more the pity that his death at the hands of the Greeks was so ignoble and merciless. Following the power vacuum left by Hamilcar Gizgo's death, the Carthaginian army in Sicily devolved into feuding factions. Many Sicilian city-states, thinking that the time had come to forge their own destiny, opportunistically revoked their alliance with Carthage, making war on both Carthaginian and Syracusan forces. With the death of Hamilcar Gizgo and the ensuing anarchy on the island, we turn our attention away from Sicily and back to the situation in North Africa. Unlike the luckless Carthaginians, Agathocles had been having a royally good time, plundering the rich estates of the Carthaginian nobility, sacking some Punic towns surrounding Carthage, and persuading others to join his cause. He had successfully defeated minor expeditions sent against him in several small skirmishes, and he had even managed to defeat a large force of Numidians who had briefly joined the Greeks before returning to their old allegiance. When Hamilcar Gizgo's head arrived, Agathocles paraded it in front of the walls of Carthage, dashing the Carthaginians' hopes of salvation from the army in Sicily and sending the entire city into mourning. Sensing final victory to be within his grasp, Agathocles, ever eager to identify himself with the greatest of the Hellenic kings, Alexander the Great, began to mimic the great Macedonian even more than before, striking coins with the thunderbolt motif, a symbol of Alexander, and going abroad dressed in a royal purple garb. Agathocles, however, was no Alexander, and though the troops revered him as a commander, they became increasingly frustrated by his high-handed behavior and overbearing arrogance. When Agathocles' son, Archagathus, murdered a popular officer in a drunken rage, the troops felt that enough was enough. Mutinying in force, they demanded that Agathocles surrender his son to just punishment, or, if he wished, suffer the same fate himself. When news reached the Carthaginians of the mutiny, they quickly dispatched messengers offering to bribe the Greeks to rid themselves of Agathocles and make peace with Carthage. Now, Agathocles faced being killed not by a foreign foe, but by his own incensed men. But, 
as we have seen in the past, whatever his faults, he never lacked boldness to meet a challenge. Laying aside his purple robes for the simple tunic of a private citizen, Agathocles appeared suddenly to his mutinous men and gave a fitting speech reminding them of his past triumphs and favors towards them. Then he told them that if they wished to be rid of him, he would do the deed himself. With the dramatic flourish of an actor, he produced his sword and poised it against his chest. Struck by this theatrical scene, the soldiers cried for Agathocles to stay his hand and resume his command, promising to follow him to the end wherever he led. Having successfully retrieved the situation in his camp, Agathocles had reason to be mightily pleased with himself. Besides the mutiny, the only damper on the campaign so far was the lethargic responses of the Libyan and Numidian chieftains towards his offers of alliance. Despite wild promises of riches and dominions, the Libyan and Numidian tribesmen remained for the most part doggedly devoted to their Carthaginian allies, barring an occasional opportunistic raid here or there. Deprived of this expected addition of manpower to his forces, Agathocles began casting about for a new ally to bring the fight home to Carthage. He found one in the Hellenic East, courtesy of his hero, Alexander. A thousand miles away, along the coast of modern-day Libya, lay the Greek city of Cyrene. You can see Cyrene on the map I have provided in the description. Cyrene belonged to the Ptolemaic Kingdom, one of the most powerful Greek successor states set up by the Diadochi after Alexander's death. Named after its founder, Alexander's general Ptolemy, the Ptolemaic kingdom centered on Egypt and the Middle East. Its lands are marked out in blue on the map. The Ptolemies also controlled the area surrounding Cyrene under its governor, Ophelus. Ophelus himself boasted an impressive pedigree. One of Alexander's companions during the campaigns against the Persians, Ophelus had faithfully fought with the great Macedonian throughout numerous battles and sieges. Furthermore, through his wife Euthydice, Ophelus was related to the Athenian general Miltiades, who had famously defeated the Persian expedition at the Battle of Marathon nearly 200 years before. Now, he ruled over the prosperous territory surrounding Cyrene as a nominal governor under the Ptolemies. Yet, like many restless old generals, he longed to relive his glory days and carve out a new kingdom for himself. When Agathocles' messengers arrived offering to turn all of North Africa over to Ophelus, in exchange for aid in finally defeating the Carthaginians, Ophelus eagerly jumped at the chance. 
marshalling an impressive army of 10,000 foot soldiers, many of whom doubtless fought in the new Macedonian fashion with long pikes, as well as 600 horsemen and 100 chariots. Ophelus set out in a splendid procession to claim his new kingdom. Along with the fighting men, Ophelus brought 10,000 Greek colonists, thinking to settle the Carthaginian lands with new Greek cities. For those of you who, like me, have never personally seen the thousand miles between Cyrene and Carthage, the majority is a dry wasteland of rock and sand. Diodorus describes it as a waterless land filled with savage creatures, and he says that many men were struck down by fanged monsters and snakes which were camouflaged in the sand, the men dying agonizing deaths from the venom after they had accidentally stepped on them. Despite losing many men to accident, dehydration, and the heat, Ophelus managed to accomplish the thousand-mile journey in two months, no mean feat considering the difficulties involved. His remarkable march must have reminded him of his old war days with Alexander, and when he arrived in North Africa, exhausted but expectant, he must have felt that greater glory was within his grasp. Unfortunately for the old general, he had bet on the wrong friend. Though Ophelus had escaped the savage snakes of Libya, the most venomous blow was to come from his so-called ally. A companion of Alexander the Great and relative of Athenian legends was not the sort of man who would be happy sharing command with a potter's son who had made himself tyrant of Syracuse, and Agathocles knew this full well. Agathocles treated Ophelus and his men as honored allies just long enough to lure them into resting, before summoning his men and attacking Ophelus. The old general attempted to resist, but was cut down in the conflict, and his army a thousand miles from home and bereft of leadership, was forced to accept Ophelus's murderer as their new commander. Even for Agathocles, this must have seemed like an outrage surpassing all his previous treacheries. Speaking of treachery, what was going on within the city of Carthage during this time? I began this episode with the hint of violent turmoil within the streets of Carthage that would raise Carthage's war spirit, and I do not intend to disappoint. As we remember from last time, following the Battle of White Tunis, the sole surviving Carthaginian general, Bolmacar, had retreated from the battle to the city, where he had been proclaimed leader of the Carthaginian forces. Thinking to profit from the threat of Agathocles abroad and the disordered state of affairs, Bomokar first removed many of the nobles and high-ranking Carthaginian officers from the city, ostensibly on an expedition to fight the nomadic raiders in the interior. Next, 
he secretly ordered citizens and troops personally loyal to him to assemble and support him in a bid to seize power in Carthage. Diodorus recounts what happened next. When Bomacar had reviewed the soldiers in what was called the New City, which is a short distance from Old Carthage, he dismissed the rest, but holding those who were his confederates in the plot, five hundred citizens and about a thousand mercenaries, he declared himself tyrant. Dividing his soldiers into five bands, he attacked, slaughtering those who opposed him in the streets. Since an extraordinary tumult broke out everywhere in the city, the Carthaginians at first supposed that the enemy had made his way in and that the city was being betrayed. When, however, the true situation became known, the young men ran together, formed companies, and advanced against the tyrant. But Bomacar, killing those in the streets, moved swiftly in the marketplace and finding there many citizens unarmed, he slaughtered them. The Carthaginians, however, after occupying the buildings about the marketplace, which were tall, hurled missiles thick and fast, and the participants in the uprising began to be struck down, since the whole place was within range. Therefore, since they were suffering severely, they closed ranks and forced their way out through the narrow streets into the new city, being continuously struck with missiles from whatever houses they chanced at any time to be near. After these had occupied a certain elevation, the Carthaginians, now that all the citizens had assembled in arms, drew up their forces against those who had taken part in the uprising. Finally, sending as envoys such of the oldest men as were qualified and offering amnesty, they came to terms. Against the rest, they invoked no penalty on account of the dangers that surrounded the city, but they cruelly tortured Bomacar himself and put him to death, paying no heed to the oaths which had been given. In this way, then, the Carthaginians after having been in the gravest danger, preserved the constitution of their fathers. Invigorated by the defeat of this powerful coup and infuriated by the prolonged conflict, the Carthaginians determined to drive Agathocles from their homeland once and for all. Though they had been unable to take advantage of the chaos in the Greek camp, Following Agathocles' attack on Ophelus, the Carthaginians were aided by the unexpected news from Sicily that many of the Sicilian towns had thrown off the Syracusan yoke and were threatening to take Syracuse herself. Alarmed by this news, Agathocles prepared to return to Sicily to suppress the rebellion. Before he left, he stormed the city of Utica, placing captured citizens in front of his troops, paralyzing the Utican defense since they did not wish to hurt their friends by firing on the enemy. 
after sacking Utica and slaughtering its inhabitants, Agathocles set sail to restore order to Sicily. Meanwhile, the Carthaginians viewed the departure of Agathocles with delight and prepared to wage war on the remaining Greeks under the son of Agathocles, Agatharchus. Enrolling their men into three separate armies, they sent each under skilled commanders to shadow the Greeks and harass their supply operations. Agatharchus, who had the unfortunate luck of having neither his father's skill nor boldness, mimicked the Carthaginians by dividing his own forces, playing into their hands. Before long, two of the three Greek armies had been decisively crushed in ambushes by the exultant Carthaginians, who besieged the final Greek force under Agatharchus. Seeing that he had made a right mess of things, Agatharchus hastily sent messages back to Agathocles to inform his father of the disaster and beg him to return to retrieve the situation. Agathocles could not but have been clearly irritated by his incompetent son, but he had no choice but to return. Agathocles had repressed the rebellion in Syracuse with his usual score of atrocities, and he must have felt confident that he could restore the North African campaign with a few well-timed outrages. The sorry state of his army must have dampened his hopes. He had left a powerful and well-equipped force of Greeks and mercenaries at Agatharchus' disposal. He returned to find a motley group of mutinous men with dilapidated equipment. I can almost see him telling Agatharchus on his return that this is why we can't have nice things. Remembering the last time he commanded a mutinous force in North Africa, and sensing that it would be unwise to leave his men unoccupied for any long period of time, he immediately led his men out to attack the besieging Carthaginians. These, encamped high in the neighboring hills, did not march down to give battle, confident that with their superior position and abundant supplies, they could starve Agathocles out. Thus, Agathocles was forced to attack the Carthaginian position. Even in its weakened state, Agathocles' army was no joke. He commanded 6,000 Greek infantry, 6,000 Gallic, Samnite, and Etruscan mercenaries, and 10,000 Libyan rebels. He also had 1,500 cavalry and 6,000 Libyan chariots. Yet the Libyans proved to be of little use for they stood aloof during the battle, awaiting the outcome. Even with the disadvantage of terrain and numbers, Agathocles and his men, surrounded by the well-fed and well-supplied Carthaginians, fought desperately, and for a while they held their position at the bottom of the hill. 
But the outcome was never really in doubt, and Agathocles and his men were driven back in disorder. Passing by the idle Libyans watching the conflict, the Carthaginians pursued the Greek army vigorously, sparing any Libyan but cutting down all the Greeks and mercenaries whom they recognized by their arms and armor. By the end of the battle, 3,000 Greeks lay dead. Beside them lay Agathocles' dream of an African empire. In a bizarre sequence of events following the battle, both the Carthaginians and the Greeks suffered a serious mishap. The next night, while the Carthaginians were sacrificing offerings of thanks to the gods, Diodorus reports that they sacrificed the most beautiful of the Greek captives, but this seems unlikely given that Carthaginian human sacrifice seemed to be limited to children. Regardless, a sudden wind scattered the flames onto the reed huts which made up the Carthaginian camp. Since it had been dry for some time, many of the huts caught fire, and soon the entire camp was ablaze. Soldiers were caught by the fire while trying to douse the flames, while others were burnt alive while trying to save their rich spoil from the previous day's battle. Others were caught on the narrow pathways leading up to the camp and burned to death. To add to the confusion, another group of 5,000 Libyans who had been in Agathocles' army were at that moment on their way to the Carthaginian camp to desert. When the Carthaginian sentries saw the mass of men approaching, they mistook the Libyans for the Greek army coming to attack while the fire was ongoing and sounded the alarm. Now, with the camp in flames and a supposed enemy at the gates, the Carthaginians rushed madly to and fro in terror, mistaking fellow soldiers in the dark for enemies and killing them, while others sought to flee through the rough country and fell from the cliffs to their death. When the Libyans saw in horror what was happening, they decided that maybe they had been better off with Agathocles and turned back towards the Greek camp. Now, it was the Greeks' turn to be alarmed, for their sentries reported that the Carthaginians had burned their camp and were advancing on them. In the rush to arms, the Libyans arrived and mingled with the troops, and serious fighting broke out as, once again, men mistook each other in the dark and slew their friends. By morning, both the Carthaginian and the Greek army had been scattered over the countryside, with Agathocles losing 4,000 men in the debacle. Thus, both armies suffered a serious disaster from, in the words of Diodorus, the empty alarms of war. Another wave of fear swept over the Carthage when the terrified survivors brought wild reports of the night. But when the truth was learned, the Carthaginians grimly prepared to finish Agathocles off. 
true to form. Agathocles felt that now was the time to save himself by leaving North Africa for good. Since he did not have enough ships to transport his whole army home, he first tried to sneak away secretly in the night, but was captured and bound in chains by his outraged men. Yet, luck was ever on his side, and during another camp fright, he managed to escape in the confusion, leaving his two sons behind. His furious soldiers quickly put these to death. Agathocles would later retaliate by massacring the hostages who had remained behind in Syracuse. When envoys arrived from the Carthaginians, the remaining soldiers happily agreed to the surprisingly generous terms. All cities were to be handed over to the Carthaginians, while the Greek troops were given generous payments in return. All who wished could take service in the Carthaginian army, while the rest were transported to Sicily to settle in the Carthaginian city of Solus. Any who foolishly refused were overpowered and enslaved to repair the lands they had ravaged. Following this, Carthage then took the surprising step of negotiating peace with Agathocles himself, newly returned to Syracuse. This may at first seem shocking, considering that he had been the most dangerous and vicious enemy Carthage had faced to date, and now that they had driven him from North Africa in shame, this seemed like the perfect time to bury Syracuse once and for all. However, there is a reasonable explanation to Carthage's decision. The war had dragged on for four years, and much of Carthage's richest lands had been laid waste. This coupled with the fact of the devastating defeat she had suffered, likely meant that Carthage was on the brink of financial ruin at the end of the Third Sicilian War. The Carthaginian mints had been forced to mint more and more debased currency to pay for the war effort, and large numbers of low-value bronze coins had been placed in circulation to make up the difference. Besides this financial explanation, the Carthaginians were exhausted after surviving such a trying time, and another siege of Syracuse, the troubles and risk of which they were now all too familiar with, likely dissuaded them from pressing home their advantage. So ends the Third and Last Sicilian War. During the Sicilian Wars we have discussed, it may seem like Carthage was constantly on the back foot during these conflicts. However, barring a few serious defeats, she had shown remarkable fortitude and resilience in the conflicts. Despite disasters in battle, coup attempts, Libyan and Numidian rebellions, an invasion, and even a siege of their home city, the Carthaginians had stoutly resisted all efforts to drive them from Sicily or conquer their home country. 
even when threatened by Agathocles at his height in Africa, there had been no mention of peace or attempts to compromise. Even as they watched their hard-won goods and fertile fields go up in flames. In the end, their bravery and resourcefulness proved superior to the Syracusan general's innate genius and ability. And by the time they concluded peace in 306 BC, the Carthaginians had much to be proud of. Lest we leave any loose ends, here we finally finish with the tyrant Agathocles. In 304 BC, two years after concluding peace with Carthage, Agathocles proclaimed himself King of Syracuse, a shocking step that would have offended many of the more conservative Greeks. Tyrants had come and gone over the centuries, but to style oneself as a basilisk or king was something that only the most powerful of Alexander's successors dared to do. But the times had changed, and Agathocles reasoned that he deserved to be numbered amongst the Diadochi of the East as a worthy heir of Alexander. He originally had worn a chaplet of laurels around his head. Diodorus humorously recounts that Agathocles did this not for political purposes, but because he did not have a good head of hair. Regardless, Agathocles exchanged his chaplet for a diadem, and the self-proclaimed king of Syracuse began a campaign to subdue the Greek cities of Sicily and Lower Italy to his rule. Agathocles likely intended to build up a strong power base to bring war again to Carthage. But at last, his fortune failed him. He never achieved his dream of a personal Hellenic empire. The Diadochi of the East were unimpressed by his claims to kingship and denied his hopes of alliance with their houses, and the Greek city-states of Lower Italy resisted him as fiercely as the Carthaginians had done. After fifteen more years of kingship, he died in 289 B.C. Sources conflict about his death, but it is hard not to say that either were a fitting end for such a man. Some claim that his grandson, Archigathus, murdered him in his own bid for power. Another more colorful account says that a horrifically debilitating disease, perhaps cancer of the jaw, robbed him of his speech and then his strength. Finally, he was burned alive on his own funeral pyre, being unable to move or speak. Thus, the last and most brutal of the Syracusan tyrants ended as he had lived, in blood and flames. Although Carthage had survived this assault against her homeland, Agathocles was no Alexander. His invasion had exposed the weak hold Carthage had on her tributary states, the inexperience of her citizenry in warfare, and the difficulties a well-equipped and well-disciplined invader could give her. 
As we shall see in the coming episodes, other powers greater than Agathocles would not fail to take notice of the rich pickings to be had at Carthage's expense. For, in the words of Plutarch, who could keep his hands off Libya or Carthage when that city got within his reach, a city which Agathocles, slipping stealthily out of Syracuse and crossing the sea with a few ships, narrowly mistaking. Until next time, take care and read more history.